Thanks for checking out this week's sermon from Bonavista Baptist Church. We invite, encourage, and equip you to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. In this series, we've been exploring the parables of Jesus that are unique to Luke's gospel. So these, these are the ones that are only found in Luke's gospel. And it might be surprising to you because some of them are so, so familiar, and yet they're only found in Luke. And while we explore these parables, we also remember that Luke had a special focus on the outsider. And we also remember that the parables of of Jesus weren't simply nice stories about common things to illustrate spiritual truths, but they were actually tools in the hands of Jesus. They were meant to get past our defenses, to get right to the heart of the matter. And we absolutely see that in Luke chapter 15. We don't have time to go through the whole chapter today, but I encourage you to read it because the three parables that are contained in Luke 15 come as a whole section. And so you get the most impact if you read the entire passage together. Uh, But the three parables are about lost things. Uh, There's the lost sheep, the lost silver, and the lost son. And uh, those three lost things are highlighted, and Jesus has a real purpose in what he does with those stories. Well, the whole section in Luke chapter 15 begins with a charge against Jesus. The Pharisees are at it again, and they say, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. It's not the first time that they charge Jesus with this, and we find that in the other Gospels especially. Jesus is charged with being a wine-bibber and a glutton because he liked to have the company of sinners, and he ate with them. So how serious was this charge? And maybe another question is, why was it so serious? Well, this is more than just guilty by association. It's not just someone saying, hey, I saw you with Derek the other day. Isn't he a bank robber? It's much more profound than that, much more serious. There's an old book on the parables of Jesus written by Jeremiah. And he said this, To understand what Jesus was doing when eating with sinners, it's important to realize that in the East, even today, to invite a man to a meal was an honor. It was an offer of peace, trust, brotherhood, even forgiveness. In short, sharing a meal meant sharing life. So that's what Jesus was doing. He wasn't just providing a meal He was actually sharing life with these people. And so there's more to it. The wording in the passage says that Jesus received sinners and ate with them. And that word received seems to suggest that Jesus was actually the host at the dinner. We we often think of Jesus being the guest, and that happened a lot. But there's a couple of occasions that make us think and believe that Jesus was acting as the host because He was receiving guests to his table, and he was receiving sinners and eating with them. Now, it's it's not a problem for a person to provide a meal for people in need, even people of a lower social standing, even sinners. But to provide a meal and then sit and eat with them, that was unthinkable. That was outrageous. But that's what Jesus is doing. He's receiving sinners and he is eating with them. So who are these terrible sinners 
that Jesus is eating with at this table? And, and why were they sinners? Well, the word sinner appears about five times in Matthew. It appears about six times in Mark. And it appears 18 times in Luke. That's incredible. And so Luke obviously has a major focus on this concept of the sinners. And so it's worth exploring that a little bit more because it helps us to unlock uh, the parable that we're looking at. Well, there's a number of categories that are created um, which define the word sinner. And there's a number of ways which you might be included as a sinner at the time of Jesus. Uh, one is a, is a moral category. So this is very Old Testament, and it's current today too. You're seen as a sinner if you are a lawbreaker, if you've broken the moral code. And unfortunately, at the time of Jesus, uh, the Pharisees kind of set themselves up as the referees. Uh, they would decide who had broken the code and who didn't. So they would decide who the sinners were and who, who weren't sinning. And so that's one category. If you broke the moral law, then you were known as a sinner. But there's another category, and that's the category as the, of the tax collectors. These poor guys, the tax collectors, they got lumped in with the sinners all the time. And it's partly because they were seen as traitors. They were taking money from their own people to give to the Romans who were occupying the land. That's another category of sinners. A third category were the Gentiles, the non-Jews. They were also lumped in with the Samaritans, considered sinners. And then, and this is the interesting part for me, and you might not have heard about this, and I did a little bit of digging on it, but certain professions were on the list of what they called despised trades. And this is uh, according to the Mishnah and the Talmud, and uh, I can give you a chart of the despised trades if you want to see if your trade is on the list. Uh, But here there are four categories of despised trades. First of all, there's the unsavory trades. Uh, These are are trades, if you had this occupation, apparently your wife could divorce you without cause. Uh, One of those trades was dung collector. So you can see maybe why the wives were allowed to divorce the husband if he was just coming home smelly every single day. But that was a a despised and unsavory trade, dung collector. A second group of trades were known as the bogus trades. And if you were part of a bogus trade, you were ineligible to serve as a witness or as a judge. And one of the bogus trades that I discovered was pigeon trainer. And I can only imagine how they trained the pigeons, but apparently this was a gambling enterprise. And so if you were part of the bogus trades, you couldn't serve as a witness. You were suspect you are considered to be most likely a sinner. Okay, the next two categories are of most interest to us in this parable today. The third category is the disreputable trades. And these were the trades that mostly dealt with women. And uh, one of the trades that would be in this category was a hairdresser. And then the very last group of trades are known as the wicked trades. And the wicked trades were called so because... They were thought that they were prone to commit fraud, to be fraudulent. And so part of that trade was a shopkeeper. So there's the four big categories 
of what it meant to be a sinner. It, a moral category, you broke the law. Um, tax collector, you're automatically in. Uh, the Gentiles, you're automatically in, Samaritans included, and certain professions that are on that list. And essentially, the sinners were those who didn't measure up to the standards of the Pharisees. Luke was three times a sinner. He was a Gentile. That's strike number one. As a Gentile, he didn't keep Jewish law. That's strike number two. And this might surprise you, but because he was a physician, he had a wicked occupation. Physicians were listed as part of that prone-to-commit-fraud occupation. And so Luke identifies with the sinners. It's no wonder he mentions them 18-plus times within his gospel. And it's no wonder that this phrase about Jesus eating with sinners and receiving sinners is so important to Luke. Well, it's important that we spend a little bit of time just understanding uh, what it meant to be counted among the sinners, because as we move forward into the parable, uh, this will become more and more important. Now, I I don't want to get the wrong impression. Uh, Sometimes when we say that Jesus ate with sinners, we get the impression that he was just a party animal, that Jesus just loved to hang out at the pubs and the bars, or, or that he just loved a good time. Maybe Jesus did love a good time, but that's not what's meant by he hung out with the sinners. In fact, uh, when the scribes and the Pharisees grumble about the company that Jesus keeps, his reply is that he's not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So actually, Jesus receiving and eating with sinners was very intentional and with the purpose of calling them to repentance. And that's so important as we go forward in this parable. So in these three parables, we come across the repeated phrase that says that there's rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. And so Jesus received the sinners and ate with them so that he might call them to repentance and faith. Well, of the parables in Luke chapter 15, the parable of the lost son right at the end is the longest. And that's the one we're going to focus on today. Uh, There's really three things that I want to highlight in this parable. So much going on. I hope you take the time to reflect on it, meditate on it, uh, talk about it with friends right after this YouTube service is over, um, read it again and explore it a bit more. But here's three things just to point out as you digest the parable. Uh, First is the request. The younger son goes to his dad and says, give me my share of the inheritance. Uh, it's, he's just such an entitled little monster. Uh, it's, it's unbelievable, the request that he makes. It's, it would be absolutely unheard of, especially for a younger son to make this demand, let alone the eldest son to make the demand. It's completely unacceptable behavior. And everybody listening to the parable would have known that instantly. They would have been shocked and horrified at the behavior of this youngest son. Essentially, what he was saying was, Dad, I wish you were dead. That's how serious it is. That's how profoundly absurd and inappropriate it is for this younger son to demand his share of the inheritance from his dad. 
It was a shameful thing to ask. But in the end, the shame was on the father for granting the request. I don't know how the father was able to show his face in the community after he doled out the money to his son. Uh, because people would be saying, how can you give in to your son like that? How can you allow him to manipulate you? What kind of a spineless man are you? Where's your honor that this son would take such advantage of you? I think sometimes children can only see the limits of their own naive desires. And there's no right and wrong in their mind. There's only what they feel in the moment. And there's no sense of the disrespect or dishonor with which they treat their parents. There's no sense of, of the shame and the pain that they cause. But that's exactly what's happening within this request part of the parable. So the horror of the story is the request of the younger son. But it's the father who bears the shame. Just keep that in mind. Okay, the second thing, not just the request, but let's look at the reality of what the son faced in the end. The prodigal, or we could say wasteful son, he hits rock bottom along the way, and he was hungry, the passage says. Well, why was he hungry? It's interesting you can get different responses from different people, even in different parts of the world, to that one question, why was the wasteful son hungry? Generally, within Western culture, our answer would be was, well, it says after he had spent everything. So in other words, he was out of cash. He had no money, therefore he was hungry. His problem was a financial problem. But other cultures around the world have picked on different parts of the passage. Some others have said, well, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And that's why he was hungry. There was an environmental factor. And other people have responded, well, it says in the passage, no one gave him anything to eat. So there was a social factor within this. And I think it's important for us to pause and and reflect on that a little bit. Uh, Sometimes when you think of poverty or people who are lost, we think of them purely along one angle. We think of poverty often as not having enough money or not having enough of something. But poverty is also environmental, and poverty is also social. And when you put all those aspects together in this parable, you come up with a definition of what it means to be lost. This boy was lost. So we have the request, we have the reality he faced, but then we have the beauty of the story, which is the return. The son comes to his senses and recognizes his sin. And the sin is not so much that he wasted all his money. The sin isn't even that he visited prostitutes, like his older brother eventually accuses him of. The sin, and he recognizes this, is that he failed his father. It was a sin against his father. And it's a sin against that basic command, honor your father and mother so that you might uh, live long and prosper. I don't think it says live long and prosper, but something like that. So he recognized his sin was against his father. But then we have the climax of the story, the most beautiful scene. Every time I read these words, I feel choked up, uh, just a sense of 
wonder at the grace of the Father in this situation. Because it says that while the Son was still a long way off, (laughs) the Father had been watching and waiting, looking down the road, longing for his Son to return. And while the Son was a long way off, he ran to him. Uh, I've noticed on Facebook, a number of people have been posting uh, influential albums, so records uh, that have influenced them over the years. And I have to say that one of the records that influenced me was given to me by a Sunday school teacher. And uh, the, rest, the record was from Benny Hester. And I think the record was um, called Benny From Here. And the song on there that caught my attention was When God Ran. And it's a fantastic song, gets me every time. And that's kind of the image that we have here, is this father in an undignified way, runs to meet the repentant son. He runs to him. You know, the prodigal returning, he should have been shamed. The the father, he should have been absolutely furious with his son. But instead, the father runs to the edge of the village. And in plain view of everyone, he embraces his son and kisses him on the cheek. The father did this on purpose, and the purpose was to restore the honor and the dignity that the son had thrown away. And the father, by restoring the honor and dignity of the son in this way, allowed the son to regain access to the community without carrying the burden of shame. Once again, the father bears the shame for this repentant son. This is the grace of God. There are so many lessons within this story, and I hope you read it again and again and discover many more lessons. But I just want to focus in on on a couple of things to leave us with this morning. First of all, if you identify with the younger son today, if you feel that you've just come to a place where you are lost through either mistakes that you've made, decisions that you've made, or something that other people have done to you, your environmental circumstances, uh, the social circumstances you're in, and you're finding yourself lost. I just want to say, take one step of turning, of repentance toward God, and he will run to you. He will forgive you. He will restore your dignity, and he will throw a party in heaven. That's what the passage is all about. So, So turn to him, and he will run to you. But the reality is that there are actually two lost sons in the parable. And it's the second lost son that is overlooked. And I think it's the second lost son, the older son, that is really the final point, the final push of the parable for Jesus. See, when the younger son returns home, uh, the father throws a huge party. I mean, he, he, he butchers a calf. You can't just go down to the local grocery store and pick one up. This takes some time and planning and effort and expense. Uh, He invites basically the whole village to it. That's the context of the celebration. And he throws an all-day feast. But the older son refuses to attend. He also dishonors his father and brings public shame to him because of his refusal to come to the table 
that his father has prepared. And again, the father should have been furious with him. The father should have banished him, punished him, done something to him to try and recover his own sense of honor. But instead, the father responds with unconditional love and invitation, open invitation toward the older son. Well, this is the message that Jesus has for the Pharisees. The Pharisees who accused him right at the beginning of the passage for eating and re- eating with sinners and receiving them to the table. Um, the Pharisees are the ones who have obeyed everything all along. The, the Pharisees are the ones who have slaved for the Father all along. And Jesus says, look, you're complaining that I've prepared a meal for the sinners, but I want you to know that you are welcome to the table as well. You're welcome to the table. Come and join the feast. I think so much of our world wants to divide us, wants us to make it a, an us and them kind of arrangement. I've just been shocked even over the last uh, number of weeks to see uh, the divide between, say, BC and Alberta and some of the horrific notes uh, people are leaving on each other's cars just simply because of their license plate, this, this competition, us and them, divide and conquer. We've seen it in even more horrific details, the, the, the us and them between black and white and the horrific events that have occurred in the States in the last uh, number of days. But we see it in all kinds of ways, gay versus straight, Christian versus Muslim, male versus female, and we're pitted against each other. But there's room at the table for us all because of God's grace, because of this simple fact. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we all come to the table through repentance. There's room at the table for us all. So my invitation today is let's celebrate together over every sinner who repents, especially when we are that sinner.